Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, either a paper copy that's handy there in the pews or you might have brought with you or uh, digitally, if that's uh, the way you prefer, to the book of First Corinthians. We uh, finished up our series through First Samuel last uh, Sunday and are launching this new sermon series today, really a week or so ahead of our uh, official launch. But there's so much uh, rich material to cover here. I wanted to, I was I was itching. I was an itchy trigger finger. I had to go ahead uh, with it. And if you're familiar at all with this book of the Bible, again, it's uh, found in the New Testament. It's after uh, Acts and Romans. Uh, it's before you get to Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians. So it's uh, towards the latter part of your Bible, 1 Corinthians. Uh, this was written, as perhaps we're familiar, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, but by the Apostle Paul, one of the founders of the early church. It's what we call an epistle, which is just a fancy word for a, a letter. It was a letter written to a church in Greece in the city of Corinth, and thus its name. Uh, Acts chapter 17, and I'll I'll be doing a little bit of introduction, sort of plowing the ground today uh, before we get to our passage, so bear with me in that. But Acts 18 tells a bit about Paul's time there, the Apostle Paul, as he founded uh, this church. Most likely he arrived there around the year 50, and then he wrote this letter in uh, 50. He stayed there for the longest time of any other of the churches that he founded, as far as we know, other than Ephesus. Now, you know, that may seem like a positive thing. As we read through, we're going to realize that uh, the Corinthian church had a lot of difficulties, had a lot of warts, had a lot of challenges. So it may be that uh, the Apostle Paul had his work cut out for him. That's why he stayed there so long. But he was there for uh, quite a period of time. We, we've gotten fancy. If you want to turn to the sermon notes section in your worship guide, even if you don't normally turn there, if you're not a notes person, you notice we got real fancy this week on page 19. We actually have a map. I know many of you are uh, intricately familiar with the uh, geography of Greece uh, and the Aegean Sea, but I, I wasn't. So I thought I'd put this in here to help us. And you'll you'll see I want us to get a little bit of a feel before we dive into the passage today. Of, of what this place was like, because it'll help us as we go through to interpret and understand uh, some of the things the Apostle Paul was saying. You can uh, see right off the bat, uh, not surprisingly, that Corinth became a place of prosperous uh, times of business and trade. It's obviously important, you can see, for land travel, because you can't get from the bottom part of Greece to the northern part of it without going through there. It was also crucial for sea travel, though. It doesn't look to me like a huge journey around by boat, but apparently that was, you know, valuable to save that time going around the bottom. So they would literally, small ships would come up from one side and they would pull them all the way across that isthmus. Over to the other side, bigger ships would come in and be unloaded, and there were other ships that were kept on the other side. So uh, uh, Nero, the Roman emperor, even tried to build a canal there. They didn't actually build that canal until the late 1800s, but he attempted because it was such a valuable place. Now, not every uh, large and prosperous city uh, would be associated with negative morality. But for Corinth, it was. It was a dark place in that regard. And, and maybe the best way to kind of introduce this off the bat is uh, and describe the sort of vice and licentiousness that was there at this time would be to imagine if Las Vegas was a verb. Imagine if Las Vegas was a verb. Pastor, I've got to confess, I 
I Las Vegas last night. Mama, I got to admit, things got a little bit out of hand and we were Las Vegasing over at my friend's house the other day. I need to share a prayer request with the small group about my nephew. I'm worried about his soul, his spiritual condition. He seems to do nothing but Las Vegas all day long. Sounds kind of funny in our language, right? But in the Greek language, the word Corinthianize was a verb. The name of the city symbolized uh, sort of the depravity that was apparent there. It was indicative of it. The greed that came along with some of the prosperity that was benefiting that community. The sort of self-sufficiency that comes from uh, often from business success and so forth. The substance abuse and laziness and so forth that were accompanying some of that as well. And yes, absolutely, much like our culture, the uh, licentious sexuality as well. Indeed, uh, these matters were not only the center of sort of thought and practice, but they were actually physically the center of the community of Corinth. The Acro Corinth, as it was called, was about an 1800 foot uh, mountain hill, I guess you'd say, in the middle of the city. Uh, on top of it set a, a temple to the to the goddess Aphrodite which all sounds maybe relatively innocuous until we realize that 1,000 priestesses uh, worked there during the day in a sort of cultic religious practice and then would descend upon the surrounding community to uh, practice the world's oldest profession uh, during the night. It was an interesting place, Corinth. Not only that, but down in the city, stood the temple of Apollo with its uh, statues of Apollo emphasizing the male physique that would probably cause uh, some of the ladies here to blush, but was actually a house of false worship to male-to-male sexuality. And we'll look more at these matters of background and how they shape who the people were in Corinth and how we should apply the text as we move through. But that just gives us a little bit of a taste of what was going on in Corinth. The city, interestingly, was kind of on the revive during the time when Paul came there. In 146 B.C., they had rebelled. It was sort of the center of rebellion against Roman, uh, Roman influence. And so the Romans had crushed that, that town, and, it, and for a 100 years it lay dormant. In about 46 B.C., Caesar was like, well, the punishment's, <laughs> punishment's been served enough. We need this, this town back up and running. It's vital. So it was cranked back up. So by the time Paul gets there in 50 A.D., it's been back up and running for about 100 years had a population at that time of 250,000. Back in that day, a huge city, really. And, uh, and a very diverse population from all parts of the world and all walks of life. The Apostle Paul arrived there emotionally and physically and battered uh, from his time in Philippi and Macedonia. But he came there precisely because he wanted to see how the gospel of God would impact a city with the issues that a place like Corinth had. He wanted to see God glorified in there. It reminds me a little bit, uh, a number of us uh, read and enjoy uh, sermons as well from Tim Keller, pastor up in New York that's affiliated with our church uh, denomination, but also reaches a lot of folks from different places. And how in the late 80s, when he was thinking about going to Manhattan to start a church plant, he tells the story of how many people tried to dissuade him. 
said, that's ridiculous. You've got a you know, well-established church here. I think it was in Virginia where he was. Why would you go to that place? Why would you go to Corinth? The Apostle Paul went there because he wanted to see the power of the gospel deployed and displayed. And just as we, I hope, want to see that happen in our lives individually and in our community. So I invite you and uh, you can stand along with me today. We haven't stood for a while, but stand with me as I read aloud our text. That was a, a lengthy introduction to get us oriented to the Corinthian situation. I'll read aloud. You read along silently. First uh, Corinthians chapter one, verses one through nine. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ. That in every way you were enriched in him and in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You may be seated. And let me pray for us as you're seated. Father, we ask now as we dwell upon these particular passages and with the background we just shared in mind, that you'd begin the work that we trust you're going to do in our lives week out and week week in and week out this fall. As we walk through this book of Scripture, we trust that your promise is true, that you're sanctifying us by your truth, that the word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. That the word is God breathed that's useful for equipping your people. Lord, minister to us today in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've already figured out, I guess, that the church in Corinth, uh, coming out of this culture that we just described, much as we come out of the culture that we dwell in with warts and blemishes and spiritual damage and needing all the help we can get from the Lord, so too was the church at Corinth. We might say they were less like Atlantis and more like the island of misfits. Less like a monastery, more like a, a mosh pit. Less like the Boy Scouts, probably more like Hell's Angels. It's an interesting church body when we read about all the issues they dealt with. And we'll go through these in the weeks ahead. But let me just touch upon some of the challenges that that church body in Corinth had. You know, the scriptures are interesting for those that, you know, would wrestle with the inspiration of scripture. And that gets God's true and revealed word. It's interesting how the scriptures don't try to sugarcoat things, right? They tell us the truth. They tell us the truth about people like David that we've looked at in First Samuel and Saul. And don't try to make people better than they are. They're rooted in history and in time and place. They reveal themselves to be true. The same things with Corinth. You know, nobody tries to make these people out to be these perfect spiritual ideals. Their church body was replete with divisions, socioeconomic, 
racial and ethnic between the Greeks and Hebrews, men and women, this clique, that contingent, they were at odds in many ways with one another. We're going to see that in the weeks ahead. They had almost no uh, practice of kind of disciplining themselves to respond to the gospel. In fact, they sort of shut that off any sort of uh, authority or pressure. They, again, were self-made people, most likely. Probably many of them relatively new to that community. And they felt they were self-sufficient and nobody was going to tell them what to do, even if it might be very good for their soul, for their walk with the Lord. Had very little humility. They uh, divided with one another. They they sort of failed to speak into each other's lives on some major issues that were glaring. And then they divided from one another on matters of conscience, we would say, on scruples. They they drew a hard line, became very rigid with one another instead of sort of seeing that, hey, this might be debatable. Maybe my brother or sister might look at it a little different from me. They were super excited about Outward spiritual displays and things that showed that God's presence was there. And and that's not bad at all. But in the midst of that, they neglected faith, hope and love. Those things that are below the surface that really ultimately are more vital to our relationship with God, more honoring to him. That's the type of church that they were. And so it's particularly interesting what we see out of the gate. Because you wouldn't know that from what we just read, would you? It actually sounds pretty good. And it is pretty good. And what I want us to hear today is that uh, we're going to go through, and as we walk through Corinthians the next couple months, there's going to be a lot of things for us to wrestle with and apply to our lives. But at each turn, we need to remember the things in these first few verses. That we're enabled to be holy, declared holy through Christ. That we're growing in righteousness through his power in our lives. And that God loves his church and is pouring out his blessings that we read here in verses 4 to 9 as well. So if you want to follow along, you've already turned in your worship guide to that map. The, The main idea is just this, that since Christians are definitively and progressively, I'll explain that in a minute, definitively and progressively holy, we should celebrate the holiness of God's church. It's interesting right out of the gate to see God's power for transforming lives. If you look in the very first verse, and this may not be in your sermon notes outline, but we see that power of the gospel illustrated even before the Apostle Paul describes it. He says, you know, that he's writing to these people and then his brother Sosthenes as well. We, we know a little bit, and if you go to the Life of Paul Sunday School class, you'll learn even more this fall about who the Apostle Paul was, had uh, seen fit to seek to kill early Christians, was from a Jewish background, but trained in uh, the Greek academy and so forth. So a marvelous person for God to use to bridge the gap to really all peoples. And, and he was touched by the grace of God and his life was transformed. We know that story. But Sosthenes, who's that guy? Probably never heard of him before. I didn't know much about him before preparing for today. It's interesting. He was the second leader of the synagogue in Corinth. Paul had a modus operandi when he'd show up to a new town. He did it every pretty much everywhere he went. He would go into the synagogue and start with those of the Hebrew people. He would, you know, have no trouble moving on to the Gentiles and those who were sort of from a godless pagan background. But he would start with those who were familiar with the scriptures and seek to to help folks become what we would call completed Jews. 
like the apostles were, like the apostle Paul was, realizing who Jesus was. And so he, he sought to do that. And the first leader, and we read about this elsewhere in Scripture, was a guy named Crispus. Crispus was the leader of the synagogue. He came to faith in Christ. Imagine the uproar that, that happened there in that community when, when Paul went in and, and the leader himself came to faith in Christ. Sosthenes was the guy appointed to replace him, who then subsequently came to faith in Christ. And so that's why the two of them are writing it. I read recently about a similar story in our own time in the 1960s at Oxford University. The humanist society was very active in that time. Now, we don't have a lot of sort of card carrying humanists in our time. Uh, maybe people weren't quite bold enough to just call themselves atheists or secularists or whatever at that at that time. But that's, you know, what humanism is, in essence, is that we can sort of through our own well-being and good meaning, we can improve ourselves as people. and We don't need outside spiritual help. Well, the humanist society was a huge group at the uh, Oxford University. And in the 1960s, an interesting thing happened. The president of that humanist society came to surrender his life to Jesus, saw his need for the mercy and grace of a savior. They had to have a huge meeting, I read, to uh, to get this all sorted out, because what are you doing? The president of your organization no longer believes the core things that you do. So he was ousted and they put in a a new guy. Guess what happened a couple of weeks later with that student leader? He came to faith in Christ as well. Just a reminder for us uh, folks that the gospel has power to change even the most entrenched. We don't need stories about Oxford University to remind us of that, really, do we? We look at our own hearts and our own lives and realize the power of the gospel. I know myself, I used to stand strongly against some of the things that I hold at the core of my spiritual life now because of the work of God's grace in coming to Christ. Think about it this week, folks, as you consider whether to... Block all that time, Friday or Saturday or Sunday, to go to the Festival of Hope thing. And as you sit down and start to think about people to invite, I, I, I did that a little bit this last week. I didn't get as much time as I would like to. I sent a few texts, invited a few family members. I need to do more this week. But we have that tendency to say, no way. No way God's going to do a work in that person's life. You know, people were saying that about you and I at one time, right? <laughs> and yet God's been pleased to work. Sosthenes, Paul, right off the bat, the people writing this letter are a testimony to the power of the gospel to change lives. Second thing we see is that the people of God are uh, holy and called to be holy. A, a, A sort of theological way to say this is they're definitively holy right then when they come to Christ. And they're also progressively being made holy. Take a look with me first. We're going to come back to the first part of verse two. But look at the second part of verse two and then verse three. It says that they uh, all those everywhere who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. Christ is at the center of this, right? It's not just any belief system that they're embracing or that Paul's writing to them about. It's belief in Christ. He'll he'll say later in first Corinthians that he sought when he was with them to know nothing but Christ in him crucified. You ever think about that? Sometimes, especially us egghead pastor kind of people, you know, overcomplicate things. Let's be honest. Boston Paul remembered, hey, it's about Christ and him crucified. That's what our relationship is. But he goes on and he gives his standard greeting, but it's a, it's a greeting that's rooted deeply in spiritual realities. He says in verse three, grace to you and peace 
from God, our father, who is Paul to be extending these wishes from the divine one, the Lord of all the universe? Well, God's called him. But as a believer to other believers, he can say that he can say grace, unmerited favor to you. That's what comes through Christ and, and, and peace. We, we are no longer in conflict with God. We may not realize it if you're here today and you're just beginning to think about the things of Christ or, you know, you don't know Christ yet. You may not realize that you're maybe out of odds with the Lord, out of peace with him. But one of the things Jesus does is he brings us into peace with the Lord who we're prone to be enemies of in and of ourselves. And then he gives us, you know, peace with one another. We start to figure out how to forgive because we've been forgiven so much. We show grace and then we have peace with each other that's much deeply. And then hopefully we're also growing in sort of what we would think of as peace, an inner sense of our well-being. Because we've got our identity then rooted in Christ. So the Apostle Paul, all this stuff is really wrapped up even in these first words of greeting. And they relate to this idea of being definitively holy. So go back to the beginning of verse 2. And we'll see what it says about that. He calls them the church of God. And then he says to those sanctified past tense. That just means made holy. That's just a churchy word for made holy. Already made holy because it's sanctified. We may not get sanctified, but we understand E.D. Sanctified. It's already been done. Called to be saints together. Saints, holy ones. Made holy and called to be holy. What does that mean? For you and I today, that however messy our lives, however much it might look like some of those Corinthian attributes I described earlier, how many of uh, you guys here have been with the priestesses, if not in person, digitally. How many here may struggle even with attraction to the same sex? However, may tend to be divisive people or clicky people and sort of judge other folks because they're outside of your group. However, many here might be ignoring the, the love of God to put his authority and his rule in our lives and want to push that off, whether it's big ways or small ways. However, many here might lack a conscientious approach, a sort of gracious approach to other believers and might be real diehard about every single opinion we hold spiritually instead of being gracious with one another. Whatever plagues us, whatever ways we've turned away from the Lord, we're reminded here that if we're in Christ, we are holy ones. We are seen in God's sight as beautiful, as lovely, as cherished. Do you believe that today? Crucial that we believe that. But Paul doesn't leave us there, does he? He tells us we've been declared holy, but we're also being made holy, which is just an extension of this joy, this wondrous work that he's doing in us. He's going to transform us. And on every page of First Corinthians, we see why we ought to seek holiness, not just to be good people, but to really follow God. One, because we see how loving he is in Christ, that he's laid out this good path for us. Two, we are responding to his love for us in Christ. We're grateful. So we want to walk with him. Three, we know the damage that comes when we don't really walk with him. And in his ways, we're seeing all of those things and we're becoming uh, people who desire holiness more and more. What a picture, really, of the Christian life, sanctified and called to be saints. 
That's going to carry us through a lot of first Corinthians. And then lastly. Lastly, we see God's holiness displayed in this early church. The list I gave a few minutes ago of ways that we might be similar to the Corinthians. Those probably weren't just glancing blows, were they? Those are realities in our hearts and our lives. We're a messed up group of people. We're an island of misfits, too, starting with this guy right up here, just like the Corinthians were. And so were they. They had many problems, and yet it's amazing how the Apostle Paul speaks to them. Maybe it's a little bit like this. I don't know how many. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I've seen the movie as good as it gets. Probably 12, 15 years ago. Not necessarily one I recommend for wholesome family viewing, but it is uh, has some amusing parts in it. It's got Jack Nicholson in it. You know, he's always just entertaining to uh, to watch. And, and he's got a, he's got a various uh, levels of uh, complexes, I guess you would say, psychologically and so forth. Very concerned about germs, very concerned to be out in the world. He's a very isolated sort of person. But he writes these novels about deep passion and connection. He's a famous writer, but he can't really relate to anybody. He's sort of holed up in his apartment by himself. And it's sort of a story about, you know, all that goes on with that. But it's a, it's a fascinating part of that movie. And maybe if you saw it, you recall when he goes in to meet with his psychologist. And he's sort of furious because she can't help him and get him straightened out with his problems. And so he goes in there kind of mad and with these complexes and issues he's dealing with. And then he walks out and they show him walking out and the camera sort of pans around the the waiting room. You know, you can picture the scene. And, And just even by the camera panning past the eight or nine people in the waiting room, as it goes past each one of them, you can almost guess what their issue is. You know, you can sort of see that they're all dealing with something. And of course, they're there at the psychologist's office. And just to sort of spite everybody, The mean-spirited character of uh, Jack Nicholson turns around as he's leaving the office and he says, what if this is as good as it gets? What if this situation you're stuck in with your issues and sins and fallenness, what if it's as good as it gets? It's interesting how that can affect us, that mentality, when we start to think that way about ourselves or even about a church body, a church family. There's an extended a quote in your worship guide. I'll read it to you now. That was interesting, taken from one commentary I read this week. He says, even those churches which have glowing reputations are known all too well by their members and pastors to be full of weakness and sins. The sad thing is that dissatisfied church members will often naively think that another church in the area will somehow be better than the one they now attend. From this restlessness comes the common habit of church swapping. We need to register, he says, this primary truth. Paul looks at the Corinthian church as it is in Christ. It's my emphasis. Before he looks at anything else that is true of the church. The statement of faith is rarely made in our local churches. The warts are examined and lamented. But often there's no vision of what God has already done. We don't have time to dwell extensively on verses four through nine. But just glance through there with me in the one or two minutes we have remaining. Apostle Paul's given thanks for them. We'll read the rest of this epistle. We're going to wonder, how can you give thanks for these folks? He gives thanks for them. Because why? The grace of God was given to them. In every way, they're enriched in speech and knowledge. 
the testimony, verse 6, is confirmed in them. So what was said about Christ has taken root, he believes, in their lives. Verse 7, they're not lacking any spiritual gift. They've, been, they've had all this stuff poured out them abundantly. Uh, God's going to sustain them to the revealing of the Lord Jesus to that last day. And they'll be guiltless. Guiltless, once again, declared holy. God's faithful to them. He's called them into fellowship and given them the privilege of fellowship with his son. All of this stuff, this whole boatload of tremendous blessings are on this church so that we could say about the church in Corinth and Lord willing about our church here at Cross Creek Church, even with all its blemishes and faults. Not uh, what if this is as good as it gets, but look how good it has already gotten. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're just really thankful today as we read these verses four through nine, just quickly at the end of our time for all of these things being true in our midst, spiritual gifts that we've been given and so many are using in a way in our church body to uh, nourish one another, some from behind the scenes, some from up front, uh, some that are obvious, some that are subtle. Lord, we're so thankful for that. Lord, for the reality of your grace poured out on us, for giving us speech and knowledge, for us being able to know your ways and walk in them, for the fact that we can know that we'll see you on the day of Christ Jesus, that we know where we're going for eternity, and in all these ways, Lord, that you are faithful to us. Lord, help us to see that and help us to meditate on it even as it applies individually to us, as we see that you've made us, each one who is in Christ here, holy in your sight. And that out of all of that, Lord, you desire for us to be transformed and to be changed, that we would walk in holiness as you call us to. Thank you for these good things from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.